Well, it's good to be here this morning with you. It's good to have an opportunity to preach. Um, I'm just uh, thankful to be here, and I hope that uh, together we'll learn some great stuff about what God has for us in this passage. So today we're going to talk a little bit about soup. It's a nice cold day, so it's a good topic for today, right? Soup has been part of the human diet for centuries, and it's a, it's a staple on restaurant, menu, restaurant menus around the world. The earliest archaeological evidence for the consumption of, of soup by humans dates back to 6,000 BC. That was around the time the, the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent region was being inhabited. And the soup of choice for them, hippopotamus soup. Not one I've been able to try myself, but sounds interesting. Now, while living in Ireland, I've, I've, uh, I've grown fond of a good bowl of seafood chowder, which seems to be available at most restaurants and pubs around the country. The best part about soups is that they're hearty, they warm you up on a cold day like today, and they're relatively inexpensive to, to purchase at a, a restaurant or pub or to make at home. So the question is this, how much would you be willing to pay for a good bowl of soup? I did some research, and, and Campbell's Soup has a website where they created a list of the, the world's most expensive soups. There's a restaurant in Mayfair, London, where you can get a soup called Buddha Jumps Over the Wall. The story goes like this. Uh, the, the soup was first made near a Buddhist monastery, and the scent of the meat-filled broth was so attractive that allegedly one of the, uh, the monks who was bound by his religion to be vegetarian jumps over the wall to ask for a bowl of this soup. The soup takes two days to make, and, it, and the recipe reads like instructions for putting together a lunar lander. This soup sells, get ready for this, for a whopping 175 euro a bowl. And that's the cheapest one of the three I'm going to talk about. There's a Taiwanese restaurant where a chef concocted a beef noodle soup where he uses the best beef that he can find from Japan, Australia, the U.S., and Brazil. It took him 15 years to get his beef noodle soup just right. The chef asked his high-profile clients just how much they'd be willing to pay for this soup, and the most common answer was 10,000 Taiwan dollars, which equates to 285 euro a bowl. So that's the price that he set for his soup. The soup that tops the list is a Vietnamese pho soup that was created by a restaurant in California in the United States uh, for a charity auction. Get ready for this. The starting bid for the soup was 4,394 euro. That was the starting bid. The, the, the final selling price was for far more, but the person who won the bid preferred to remain anonymous along with the cost of that very expensive soup, probably for good reason. But perhaps the most expensive soup ever sold was to Esau from his brother Jacob. A red lentil soup or stew, depends on which translation you're reading, that cost him more than he could ever imagine. We'll go into more depth about what selling his birthright cost him later in this sermon. If we place ourselves into this story, it would be easy to think that given the circumstances, we would have chosen differently. But is that true? How often are we tempted to make hasty decisions based on our immediate desires rather than consider the long-term consequences, probably more often than we care to admit. 
So as we take a closer look at these verses today, I encourage you to think about your own lives and your choices, because we too have a birthright that's easily squandered for the desires of the flesh. As we look at these verses today, may we find wisdom and insight to guide us on our journey of faith. So let's do a a kind of a quick flyover to see kind of where we are. Jacob and Esau, and we talked a little bit about this last week with Jason, uh, were the twin children of Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah was infertile, if you remember, and uh, Isaac prayed for her and she became pregnant. But it was a difficult pregnancy. When she asked God why the pregnancy was so hard, he told her it's because two nations are in your womb. And they did eventually become the fathers of nations. But the Lord also told her then that the older would serve the younger, which was a prophecy giving us some insight into what was about to come, what was about to happen in their story. So Esau was born first, and then uh, he, he was, as you, we learned last week, he was red-haired and hairy when he was born. And then came Jacob, grabbing at Esau's heel to pull him back inside the womb. Their relationship was contentious from the very start. Their names fit too. Esau means hairy. And Jacob, which comes from the Hebrew word meaning may God protect, also sounds like the words, the Hebrew words heal and watch from behind. So Jacob's name literally means heel grabber or deceiver. Jacob and Esau were as opposite as they could be. Esau was an outdoorsman. He, he loved to spend his time in the open country hunting and camping. He was a man's man. Jacob preferred to stay around camp. Now, Isaac preferred uh, Esau because he had a taste for wild game. Rebekah preferred Jacob because he had a tendency to stay around the house and do indoor things. He was a little bit more quiet. Of course, whenever parents uh, pick favorites, it, it never goes well. Amen? <laughs> but now, uh, God had predicted that Rebekah's secondborn would rule over her firstborn, but it was, un- it was highly unlikely, based on the traditions of this time, that Jacob would ever take Esau's position as the firstborn and take his inheritance. Esau was strong and outgoing, but he was ruled by his urges. Jacob made up for his lack of outdoor skills by being clever and conniving. Jacob patiently waited for a moment to make a play for his brother's birthright. Jacob knew his brother's weaknesses, and he was just waiting for the right moment to use them against Esau. Now, before we get into the verses, I I want to be very clear about what a birthright is in Esau's case. As the firstborn, Esau would be entitled to a double portion of his father's possessions. So if there were two sons, the inheritance would be split three ways. Two portions would be given to the firstborn and one portion would be given to the secondborn. He would also be like the tribal or family leader upon the death of his father. He would gain certain responsibilities like uh, overseeing the younger sons, taking care of his father's widow, and overseeing his extended family to make sure that they were all well taken care of. It also meant that the one who had the birthright uh, was kind of the priest of the family. So basically, the firstborn's birthright meant that he was responsible for his family's material and spiritual well-being. But even more in this particular family, according to the blessing, blessing given to Abraham, the firstborn's blessing would include being a direct descendant of the Messiah who was to come. So a lot is at stake here. 
So now starting at verse 29, if you have your Bibles, starting at verse 29, we see Esau returning from the field, probably after a long and, and maybe unsuccessful hunting trip. He's depleted. He's famished from his activities. And Esau finds Jacob cooking a nice red stew. As we see in verse 30, Esau says, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. It says that he was given a nickname at this time for his affinity for red stew. The nickname was Edom, which means red. And the nickname stuck with him and even remained with his posterity because uh, they were later called the Edomites. Jacob has Esau right where he wants him and attempts to gain his birthright for a measly bowl of soup. In verse 31, he says, sell me your birthright now. Although Jacob was certainly underhanded in this act, he was not in this instance being deceptive. I mean, he was open and obvious about what he was doing and what he wanted. But he was manipulating Esau's situation to take advantage of him for his own gain. In verse 32, we learn a little bit more about Esau. He was a a sensuous and impetuous person whose impatient and ill-considered answer to Jacob was, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? He gave up his birthright to satisfy himself in the moment. In another few hours, he's going to be hungry again. But he'll be eating his next meal without the double portion of his inheritance in his future. And no part of the eternal promise given to Abraham, which would now pass down to his brother, the secondborn, Jacob. While Esau was hot-blooded and flippant, Jacob was cool and calculating. So Jacob makes Esau swear to him that he'll sell him his birthright in verse 33. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright for a bowl of soup and some bread. At the end of the story in verse 34, it says that he ate his soup and bread and then got up and went on his way. The text in in in, uh, verse 34 uh, becomes very staccato. I'll read it to you real quick. Then Jacob gave, gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. The author records the story here in a short and choppy way to demonstrate the flippancy with which Esau viewed the situation. He doesn't even, it doesn't even register with Esau what he's done. There seems to be no concern or remorse here for Esau, who maybe he even hasn't realized the gravity of what he's done in this moment. And then the story wraps up by saying, thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau treated with contempt his most important possession. Not since the Garden of Eden has there been a more costly food choice. Now, I mentioned earlier that Jacob was correct and that he valued the birthright and wanted it, wanted it so badly that he was willing to dupe his brother into giving it to him. Also, while unbrotherly and unscrupulous, he wasn't deceitful in making this bargain, but where Jacob made a mistake was jumping ahead of God's plan. There's a saying that says, faith is living without scheming. And this would have been a good saying for Jacob to take to heart. The Lord had already told Rebekah that the older will serve the younger. And it's safe to assume that she told Jacob this many times while growing up, Jacob being her favorite. The birthright was coming to Jacob in God's own time. 
But Jacob couldn't wait for God to work, and so he grabs at the opportunity to take on his own terms what God had already promised him. He should have waited for God's timing. He operated under the principle that he should do what he could for himself. He thought that if he could help himself, there's no reason to wait for God to perform this. How often do we pray for something and then jump ahead of God's timing when it would be better for us to wait until God has everything lined up and ready for us? God's timing is always right. The entire book of Genesis emphasizes the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of his delays. Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years for Isaac to be born. This is jumping ahead a little bit in Jacob's story, but Jacob had to labor 14 years to marry the woman he loved. And Joseph had to wait 25 years to be reconciled with his brothers. Our times are in his hands, as it says in Psalm 31:15, And God's timing is never wrong. Now, before we get too judgmental and slam Esau for his flippant attitude about his birthright and his short-sightedness and giving up the eternal for something temporary, let's dig into how easy this is to do and where we ourselves are prone to this shortfall. If you turn with me to Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 17, I'll give you a second to get there. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. Excuse me. So in that verse, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. This is a warning to not be like Esau, whose loose and profane character led him to sell his inheritance as the oldest son for the temporary gratification of a single meal. The writer here urges the readers not to yield to temporary pressures and forfeit their inheritances. If some did, they would regret their foolish behavior and and might find their inheritance privileges lost, as were Esau's. By Esau's negative example, he teaches us to hold fast to what is truly important, even if it means denying the appetites of the flesh. There's a story about an aviator. His name was Henley Page. He's a pioneer in his field, and he once landed in a remote area during his travels. Unknown to him, a rat got aboard the plane there, and on the next leg of the flight, Paige heard the sickening sound of gnawing as the rodent started to eat away at the wires and the instruments, making it possible for the plane to stay airborne. Suspecting that it was a rodent, Paige's heart began to pound as he thought about the serious damage that could be done to the fragile mechanisms flying this plane. He remembered hearing that a rat cannot survive at high altitudes, so he pulled back on the stick. The, the, the airplane climbed higher and higher into the sky until even Paige found it difficult to breathe. 
He listened intently and finally sighed with relief when he realized that the gnawing had stopped. When he arrived at his destination, he found the rat lying dead behind the cockpit. Oftentimes, we, God's children, are plagued with sin and fleshly desires that gnaws at our life. Simply because we're living at too low a spiritual level. To see sin defeated in our life requires that we move up away from the world to a higher level where the things of this world cannot survive. You see, we have an inheritance, a birthright that comes with being a Christian. In Galatians 3, 23 through 29, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for us. It says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer, longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We are all now sons of God and heirs of Abraham according to the promise. Being a child of God is a privilege and it has a birthright that comes with being born again. In that instant, you are adopted into God's eternal family. All of God's blessings are rightfully yours. In addition uh, to receiving eternal life through Christ's sacrifice, those born again into God's kingdom also get a whole new birthright. Besides the salvation that lasts forever, this birthright includes peace, joy, and hope. God's love for his children is not conditional. A careless or malicious word cannot undo the work that God did for us in Jesus Christ. When we give into sin, we squander the gift of life given to us. The damaged pieces of our life are not beyond God's ability to repair and restore. Please hear that. But when we focus on the sensual and the seen, we do squander God's best for us. Therefore, we must pursue Christ, the unseen, over the sensual, if we are to experience the fullness of God's best for us. Birthright has meaning to us even today because it is granted to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the divine heir as God's firstborn son. He rules over everything God created and will inherit everything God has made. Because of Jesus' sacrifice and, and death on the cross, we have become children of God and we share in his eternal life. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what this story tells us about God. God wants his best for you. I'm going to say that again. God wants his best for you. I want that to sink in. Like a good parent who loves his children and warns them not to put their hands in the fireplace while it's burning because there's a danger to get singed and hurt. God gives us warnings and, and commands because they're ultimately for our good. When God warns us about avoiding sin and, and fleshly desires, it's because he knows that there are consequences to sin. 
And we pay a price when we choose to serve our desires rather than to hold on to what is eternal. God's way is the best way. The choices we make in our lives determine our future. I know a pastor who often says that we're all one bad decision away from ruining our lives. We should never be so proud as to think that we could never make a poor decision. And likewise, we should never trade God's best for fleeting pleasures and unnecessary desires. If we do, in the end, we will come up empty. <clears throat> if we live for God's kingdom and righteousness and strive to fulfill his purposes, we will be satisfied with unparalleled joy and peace, which our Savior gives us and which no one can take from us. Amen? So how do we apply all this to our lives? First, we must remember to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. I know you've heard that before. This means that we need to remember to live in the promise of our inheritance and not in the circumstances and temptations of our life. Until Jesus comes, uh, our, our lives will be filled with all kinds of struggle and temptation. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5 that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Then The enemy is always there to tempt us to make a decision based on the urges of our flesh. But God wants us to inherit his best and to not settle for cheap imitations that fade and falter over time. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, says this. I love this quote. You probably heard it before, but it's just it's really good. It says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Isn't that a great quote? So how do we keep from temptation and walking in the flesh? We must learn the lesson of the dog. You're like, where are you going with this, Chris? Hang, hang in with me. We'll get there. So anyone who's ever trained a dog knows this scene, right? If you have a dog. If you put a treat on the floor and you say no, the dog learns that they're not supposed to touch that treat. Right? The dog will usually, though, take his eyes off of the food because the temptation to disobey would be too great. And instead... The dog will fix his eyes on his master's face. We should learn that lesson as well. To avoid temptation, always keep your eyes fixed to the master's face. In fact, as we are focused on Christ, that's when we're transformed. The Holy Spirit paints for us a picture of the cross, and that's what transforms us. The theologian and preacher Charles Goodwin says, uh, the only way to fill an affection is for a deeper one to take root. The more we are drawn to the cross, the more we love what God has done in Christ, the more our fleshly desires are replaced with God's best. So the second application point today is we need to value our spiritual inheritance as the most precious thing in our lives and to not give it up for anything. When life on earth comes to an end and you go home to be, the Lord, be, be with the Lord, you'll receive the full measure of your spiritual inheritance. 
1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance is promised, but not to everyone. Our inheritance, eternal life with God, is for those who hear the truth, believe in Jesus, and repent of their sin. If you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus to save you from your, from your sins, I, I, I urge you to do that today. Don't wait any longer. Your spiritual inheritance is waiting for you. And that inheritance is eternal life with God. But, and this is good news, if you're here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are joint heirs with Christ and you share in his life example. As an adopted son or daughter of our Heavenly Father, we must die to sin in our old selves. As the theologian John Owen said in his book on the mortification of sin, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And then rise to new life in him and have fellowship with the Father. Even though the full measure of our inheritance will not be realized until we see heaven, we can experience some of our spiritual inheritance here on earth. I encourage you to seek God and continue to develop a relationship with him. Set aside time every day to, 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 set, to spend time with him. Get to know who you are in Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. Walking in your inheritance is the true meaning of living a Christian life. So in conclusion today, the story of Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of soup serves as a timeless reminder of the importance of cherishing our spiritual inheritance, of making wise decisions as we live out our faith and relying on God's grace for our redemption. As we leave here today, I urge you to value what truly matters. I urge you to exercise self-control in your choices and trust in the boundless grace of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know you are a good Father who wants the best for His children. We are thankful to you for your invaluable inheritance, which you have given to us as adopted sons and daughters of God. We don't deserve it, but your mercy and your grace abound and gives us the fullness of your goodness here on earth and eternal life with you in heaven. Help us to cherish our spiritual inheritance and to nurture our relationship with you so that we can experience your best for us. Help us to be wise in our choices and holy in our behavior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.